Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. I am going to keep this very brief because I have uh, been talking way too much. Um, uh, here's the plugs. Denise Scott is on today's podcast. I love Denise Scott. Uh, I don't need to tell you much more than that because I say it all to her in the podcast. Uh, you will love this one, I reckon. Um, it's rare at the end of the podcast that I say to the guest, I love you. <laughs> uh, normally that's probably pretty inappropriate. It may have even been, uh, when we recorded this one, but, uh, I do indeed love Denise Scott and I loved having this chat with her. She is doing a show with Judith Lucy called Disappointments, uh, that you can find all over the country still. And it's uh, comedy.com.au. Uh, comedy.com.au is also where you can find the details of my show. We're legal, uh, that I am doing for the rest of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and then in Canberra, Sydney and uh, Perth. All of those are still on sale, so uh, come out and see a show. It's the best way to support the podcast. Otherwise, you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash tofop, T-O-F-O-P. Um, at some stage, we're going to put a philosophy level in, but uh, contributing there helps me pay for the people who helped me put this podcast together. So uh, if you like the show and you want to hear more of it, then uh, tell your friends, rate it, you know, do all that sort of stuff. But uh, throw us a couple of bucks on Patreon and that helps keeps the light, keeps the... Oh, God. You know, it deserves a much better intro than this. That's what I would say. But I just don't have it in me. So this is the best you're getting. Um, luckily, the, from now on, from the minute I stop talking, this podcast gets really great. Because Scott is the best. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and uh, we're on a bit of a run. We only put out 12 episodes in the entirety of last year and I think we're going to put out 12 in about the, uh, the first two months of this season so we're very excited about the way that's going. Part of the reason for that is that it is the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and our next guest uh, who I'm going to let introduce themselves in a second though is uh, I'm just going to say this. Normally I say this in the intro but I'm just going to say it in front of the person. I hope it's not embarrassing to you but one of my favourite comedians in the world um and who are you there you go that's it that's the who are you <laughs> after that who are you oh goodness me i'm denise scott i don't know why i've gone into panto voice i, like I am embarrassed but uh thank you yes i'm denise scott is that all i've got to say you can say Should whatever I you say want. i feel like i've got to say nearly 63 years old I don't know why I need to say that it's but, interesting um, that you say that though because i seeing that you've said it Yes. I'm, I'm going to talk about it. If that's oh, right. okay. That's fine with me. Because it wasn't me. something that I necessarily thought I'd bring up. But in the context of what I want to say to you, I think of you so often. I, I uh, bet you do. Yeah. <laughs> I do, Scotty. You in a it. sexual way. Well, I've seen, Sometimes. You in, I've seen you in those nude suits at the end yeah. of the show many times. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, I've often wondered. We've shared some intimate stories about arthritis. and I'm We sure that have. Will while I've been wearing the nude suit. Exactly. So, yes. I mean, no one can judge me. Uh, but... Um, no, the thing that I was going to say is that often uh, I am struck by my own mortality as a performer, particularly during the yeah. Melbourne International Comedy yes. Festival. This is my 22nd year in a row and I always wonder when does it, is there a point where it stops, where I don't get to do this anymore, whether, you know, there's, well, I won't have something yeah. interesting to say. And, and often when I have that conversation with myself, the first person I think of is you because 
I think in the last five or so years, it's certainly to me, you're probably doing the best work you've ever done in your life. Is that something that you feel like is true? I feel like I'm a lot more comfortable with the genre of comedy. I never felt comfortable being a stand-up comedian. I really didn't want to be one and I've never felt, even now, I've never felt like that's my thing. Like I've, I, um, but I haven't had any other options really. You know, like I thought, well, I'd love to act, of course. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) If anyone wants to. Meet in their film or their play, or but no I mean, one surely basically. Surely they could just take one in two of Shane Jacobson's roles in the surely, films and give them. To surely you. you would think, but uh, so and and I think the older you get, though, and I don't know whether it's specific to Australia, but there's so little work opportunities, really. You know that you keep digging deeper and deeper to to survive so whilst on the one hand yeah I think I'm so much more comfortable on stage and like well this is who I am and I'm I consider myself to be quite a a boring mundane suburban voice (laughs) and that's who I am and that's what I got so take it or leave it and ever since I've decided well that's that things have improved you know I'm just more comfortable but um, I think every year as I get older, oh, I don't know whether it's depression, but, it, but it's like fucking hell, I do not know what I am going to talk about now because right. I feel like less and less, there's less and less I know about life. There's, I get more and more doubtful about my opinions because I know less about life. I feel like I understand it less the older I get. And I'm so, I feel quite humbled and like, oh, what am I going to talk about? And hence the show I'm currently doing with Judith Lucy is kind of in many ways as shallow as you can get because (laughs) it's really, it's on the surface, it's really just talking about the usual, you know, getting older stuff. I talk about my arthritis and I know yours is useful arthritis, but arthritis I talk about um I talk about um uh you know age old complaints which you know I'd love to be talking about something else but this is the other thing that's really got to me is I spent my whole career talking about family like kids my relationship with my kids as a mum and they're now, you know, in their 30s. And so for like 10 years or more, I haven't been able to talk about that. And I found I didn't have anything else to say, you know. So it was a real, oh, it's been a real struggle to find something to say. So this is interesting to me though because I think that um, the idea that I am less certain about things and how you then express that comedically. You know, I mean, I think comedy is often very easy to do in black and white, right? I hate this, I love this, Ah. this is where comedy is, right? But the more that you age, and if you age in a way, and what you're saying is very similar to the way that I feel, like I see the world so much in, you know, various shades of grey now and don't necessarily have, you know, definitive, defensible positions on things or, you know, 
I can't be outraged about brunch. You know, like, I mean, if I was yeah. 20, I could probably have a whole five minutes on how outraged I was about brunch. But, like, you know, you get to a certain point and you're like, well, I can't be as definitive about this. Then it, you're like, well, what, how, how do I then express comedically what it is that I am trying to say? So I think it's an interesting thing. What do you think that you don't know now mm. that you thought you knew, say, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, what, when, it, when you had a definitive idea about something that you don't now? Uh, I, I guess I thought I was, I, I was a lot more hippie. I believed in natural therapies. <laughs> like I really believed in them. Um, I believed that if you um, were a really loving, good parent, then everything was going to be fine with your kids. Uh I guess I believed you had more control over your life. I also believed that um, there'd always be – I'd never have problems with having a social life, friendship, hanging out with people. I believed I would never give up on life. And I I haven't given up on life, but I've really become my mother in the last couple of years where – I I do spend a lot of time. I talk about it in the show, but I really spend an amazing amount of time just lying on my bed, and and it's it's like I never thought I'd be that person. I always thought I would keep fighting the good fight and and really exploring life and being excited by life and wanting to travel and. And, and wanting to keep working, you know, and, and have ambition. And suddenly I just packed it all up one day and went to bed. And I really, I get out of bed to work. I get out of bed to do basic housework stuff. You know, uh, uh, John and I, I, I cook a meal if John won't. <laughs> you know, I go shopping for food if I have to. But it's interesting, I... I thought, I thought I was a much more. Um, I, I I thought I was a more positive person. Yeah, I think. See, well, that's interesting to me. So, when did you notice that that was changing? Like, it, was there a particular time, or is that a thing that happens very yes. gradually? Weirdly, it was, um, and this was another thing of why the show with Judith came about. Disappointments was that. Uh, Ah, my kids were both living overseas. They still do, essentially. My dog died and the I'd spent a year, like a full year immersed, like gave everything to writing a sitcom. And the so the kids were gone, the dog had died, the sitcom absolutely got rejected and... And it was, I think, a good decision that it got rejected. I don't think it was a really viable thing in the end. But I just felt like, oh, I don't have to get up. Like, my dog doesn't need walking. I don't have to – I don't have kids to worry about. And my my mum had died a few years earlier, but she took a lot of care because she had Alzheimer's. So I spent a lot of time with her. John, you know, my partner, he's as happy as can be. He's a man who's totally, like, happy to bounce around, doesn't really notice that I'm in bed a lot. 
Like, he's pretty cool. So, yeah, I thought, oh, I actually don't have anyone to look after. I don't, I don't have to do anything. And so off I went to bed. And what, really what? haven't emerged properly yet. I keep what? thinking, oh, tomorrow I'll bounce out. What is what? What's what's in bed? Like, what's happening when you're in bed? Oh, I uh, I do a bit of um, you know my basic work stuff, bit of email. Yeah. Um, I, d- I haven't. I mean, there is something pretty great about doing your business stuff from bed, though, right? It's gorgeous, but I don't I don't write anything. I haven't written anything new for a while. Um, although, you know, these days, any sort of publicity, you usually have to do quite a bit of work on. Like, you have to write a Q&A piece for the Women's Weekly. I mean, that takes time. It does me. It takes, no, it takes a lot of time. And it and has the to be... Of unreasonable requests you get in the... Like, particularly like, in a period, time period where often you are writing a show, you know, the thing that you're actually promoting, you're working full-time on that, you know, whether it be a television show, whether it be, you know, a live show or whatever. And then somebody comes to you and goes, hey, we've got 90 questions yes. about things you... If you could come you up with a comical answer for all 90, we're going to choose 15. Oh. You're like, well, how about you just send me 15 for a start and I'll give my best crack at them. But I'm not going to spend hours writing something funny for something you might not even put in. Oh, I know. And then, you know, and you get asked about stuff you don't care about and, oh, you've got to bring it home with a funny gag and it's like... And I'm, I'm quite long-winded quite a long-winded person and it's always, could you, you know, make it shorter? It's like, what the fuck? It's your job to write your column for your newspaper, not mine. Right. Also, you know, I've developed this long-winded style because I don't have many pithy things to say. That's how I manage to do a new show all the time. I'm like... See, you've just made me aware of that. But that's okay. I know it's okay. that's That's my style as well. Like, I mean, I... The, my, the reason that I can do shows is because, like, literally the, my entire 70-minute show is about something that happened within 30 hours. It's like one flight and one arrest and a drive home. And that's, that's like... That's a pretty exciting story, though. I know, but in the grand scheme of my life or, you know, time, that it's one story. You could have answered that in, like, in, in, in right. a very short sentence. What happened on the plane? Yeah. Not much. <laughs> everything went yeah. fine. I got cleared of everything at the end. Yeah. <laughs> But so I do, yeah, so I, I do my business in... Are you watching I, like oh, TV or consuming yeah, this is the media thing. or something? Um, absolutely binging on TV because uh, that's something I never did. Like for most of my years when I had kids, you know, that needed looking after and then my mum got sick and needed looking after and plus I worked. So I never watched TV. Oh, my God, I love it. I've got my stand. I've got my Netflix. Love it. If, and, uh, and what, I, what, what's your go-to? Or do you, are you a mixed viewer? Or mixed are you viewer, but... Um, all I've, in one go or are you going from show to show? Like, are you a binger? I'm, I'm pretty much a binger yeah. and, and have to stay focused on my people. Mm. So Friday Night Lights, I'd never watched. And there's 
Ah, uh, five seasons of that, and Where, they're long whereabouts seasons. Whereabouts are you up to? In I'm done. Oh, you're done. Yeah, right. Really so, sad. The, I was sad when I came to the end of that. Is, is that? I nearly had to get out of bed. I was like, <laughs> what now? It's normally the opposite. Yeah. Normally, people are like I'm so sad. I had to put myself to bed. You're like, I was so sad. Yeah. I almost had to get out of bed. Yeah. The depict the uh, this. Uh, I'll speak so that I'm not giving anything away for anybody. Um, because I would highly recommend Friday Night Lights. And the thing I would say is the first couple of seasons are amazing. It dips a little in the it, middle, but stick with it because it comes home very, very strong. Yeah. And the final couple of episodes, A, as a depiction of a marriage on television, I just think it's amazing. But what they do with these characters in the last couple of episodes where I certainly as a viewer honestly believe something that was something was going to happen, something that doesn't end up happening, but... They had told the story so well yeah. that I was like, oh, this is how it's, this is going to happen. Yeah. And I can see how this is going to happen. And yeah, anyway. And it's they fabulous, twist it. Fabulous fab- show. Yeah, really fabulous. Okay. Well, that's worth staying in bed for. I, In fact, now that you've uh, reignited, I haven't watched it since it first came out. And now I feel like I, after the comedy festival, I might treat myself by staying in bed for a weekend <laughs> and knocking through Friday Night Lights. Oh, it's so good. And now I've just, um, I haven't finished it yet, but um, Wild Wild Country. I'm hearing that's amazing. About a cult. Yes. Yes. Well, cult. Kind of. So people or within the cult didn't religion. Yes, thank you. Right. But it's fantastic, and because um, it's about the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, and when I lived, because I lived in a hippie commune in Darwin. Hello, and I arrived home one day because I was the only one in the commune with a job, and I arrived home one day, and everything on the clothesline was orange and the whole place had gone Rajneesh sort of that day and had bought their vat of orange dye and had dyed everything, babies, nappies, sarongs, everything had gone orange, the tablecloth. And everyone in this hippie commune then was saving to go to Pune to see the, their guru Rajneesh. And whilst I was still living in the commune, the guru Rajneesh pissed off from that ashram and meanwhile all these people that i knew had gone off to see him anyway it's a fantastic oh my god this documentary's great i'm loving that so i'm back in bed i'm very happy well it seems like i mean yeah i can see the the lovely little irony that while you were living in a commune you were popping off to your day job in between and yet now you're like you know having a commune of your own at home, you know. <laughs> yes, taken up, up that cat, that lifestyle, right. that relaxed, sarong lifestyle with a vengeance. Um, yeah. So how did you find yourself in a commune in Darwin? What age What age are you? What time of your life oh, is this? I was about 23, 23. And I'd been a school teacher. I've told – this story's yeah. a bit boring. Because well, no, <laughs> because cont- people have have heard, heard it. it, but well, not I'm, everybody. I well, mean, there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast who you know m- may have not it. have heard my life story. Well, I mean, of course they. I'm sure they all have. In fact, I but, play I play all your bits before everybody else's <laughs> episodes. <laughs> oh right, of course, yes. <laughs> but um, so I was school teaching, and it was my second year out teaching. And I was teaching in a high school in Melbourne and uh, I hated it. I was really, really unhappy 
and I was in well, – I'd sort of broken up, but I was in a really awful, well, in hindsight, relationship. I was miserable and uh, would never have done anything about it. This was a thing. I just didn't see that as my role, you know. Like I just thought, oh, well, this is my lot. And then had – I was I was driving, had a head-on car accident and uh, my fault – because I was a shocking shit-house driver. And uh, and uh, and I do a routine about it. I feel goosey doing it. No, but I, well, I like, I like the, hearing the story because I'm going to ask you some questions about some other things that aren't in the routine. So. Well, it's so... Well, anyway, and but this is the actual sort of routine and reality was... Um, I'd gone across into oncoming traffic and I don't know why and I'd also sped up and I don't know why. I was straight, like I didn't do drugs, I didn't drink. And I thought I'd hit a wall and I, at the point of impact, like I thought, oh Christ, I'm going to die and I'm going to die a fucking teacher. And that's my routine but it was also my real thought and I thought, when I got out of the car, I felt this incredible disappointment with my life. I felt like this is just, I felt in that split second devastated that that was it. I'd had my chance and I'd wasted it. And then I got out of the car and I thought, oh, this is a miracle. I have not got a scratch. My car's a complete pile of rubble, but oh my God. And that's when I turned around and saw that I'd actually hit another car, not a wall. And that's oh, that's when I actually decided, because I thought I saw children in this car, and I actually decided I was going to kill myself. Yep. I thought, I, I, there's no way, there's no way I can bear this responsibility. I've just killed a family, like... I'm going to kill myself. It was a really firm decision. Yeah. I, I t- c- totally relate to that. I, 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 c- I can imagine that being the way my brain works. That would have been exactly the thing that I would yeah, have thought Yeah, so as well. relief. Oh, my God, my life. I've got it back. This is a miracle. And then, oh, no, I am now going to kill myself. And then, miraculously, it turned out there was only one woman in the other car and she got out without a scratch on her which was amazing the car was just flattened and uh so then i uh decided i would quit like no problem i just thought well i can't stay i quit quit my job and i was a real stooge like i didn't know what to do with my money so i'd save money and it turned out my car wasn't registered because I didn't know you had to do stuff like that. I really fucking didn't know that that's what you had to do. So I'm driving an unregistered... Nice to know we have uh, qualified people educating the nation's children. I know. (laughs) Jesus, I didn't know that I was a school teacher. Oh, I didn't know you had... I mean, I knew you had to have a... I thought my car was registered. Anyway... No, no, no. So I mean, then look, I was in trouble with the law because I'd caused this accident. I didn't have any insurance third to cover the other car because I didn't have a reg- wasn't registered. And then 
I said no problem. And I remember going into the RACV insurance company this other driver was with and I had a check. I think it was for $8,000. I might... And they went, no, no, we like we do this with insurance. We'll cover it. I said, oh, no, I'm paying this. I've got this money from my bank account. I want to give it to this woman. And they went, well, that's unheard of. And I went, I want to do this. I want her to have a car now. So, and so I had no money and I quit my job. And, oh, the question was, how did I end up in the hippie commune? Right. Well, then... I was telling a friend who had a job in Darwin um, in a theatre company and um, anyway, and it was, and, and I told him about this, he went back to Darwin and then I was vacuuming the share house. I know, who vacuums a share house but I was <laughs> and I picked up the front doormat and there was a telegram that had been there for some days. This is going on way too long, isn't no. it? Anyway, there was a telegram because saying there's a job become available in the children's theatre company in Darwin. Do you want to audition? And I thought I must have missed it because the telegram had been there for days. And and then they didn't have money to fly me up. So I had to audition in a public phone box in Fitzroy doing monologues on a – because I didn't have a – there wasn't a house phone, a landline or anything. And it was pre-mobile. And pre-computers and I stuff. I mean, it'd be weird if it wasn't pre-mobile and they'd still sent you a telegram. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> true, true. So, yeah, so I stood in a phone box in Fitzroy and delivered a dramatic monologue that I'd written myself and a comic monologue I'd written myself. And I think the comic monologue was delivered in an English accent. I don't know why. And I can't do one now. I couldn't do one then. But anyway, I got the job and I went to Darwin. And then... So, okay, just before we get to the ashram then, um, Darwin at that time... Uh, so, I joke of Darwin now, and actually, it's one of the things that I actually really like about Darwin. I, I quite like Darwin. I've had many a good time in Darwin. And uh, and the thing that I always say to the you know, people there is that it feels like you don't ask anyone in Darwin what they were doing before they got to Darwin. No. Because so many people in Darwin are there for They're on the run. Yeah, of, from, from something. something. Yeah. From something. Not sometimes illegal, sometimes a broken relationship, sometimes, you know, you know, a life changing moment or a, or whatever. Yeah. But it feels like a place that people go to to start again, start afresh, do something different. Was it that then as well? Oh yeah, because um, you know, I I was trying to break free of this relationship. I mean, the guy had already clearly moved on. But I hadn't. Right. So I, that was part of it. Um, and I honestly thought I was going to begin my career in acting by going to Darwin. I mean, I did have a job, but, you know, Darwin's not really LA, I found out. I mean, it's off, off Broadway. It's very off, off Broadway. But, um, yeah, so it was. It was a new start. It was fantastic, actually. It's where I feel like my eyes were really opened. I did not know Aboriginal people existed. Right. Till I went to Darwin. I mean, I, I kind of knew, but I'd never met an Aboriginal person. I, I, I was blown away, like absolutely gobsmacked. 
Just that the fact that uh, these people existed or that you had... Existed and then we were performing um, in Aboriginal communities and and it was... And we, I was doing a show for um, preschoolers. This was one of the great moments of shame in my life where uh, it was a fun show. It was a really cute show. And and often the, um, all the whole community would come because, you know, it was What's a show. show? Yeah. Right. And, uh, and, you know, they really enjoy it. But it was – I'd sort of think, oh, they don't respond the same way as, you know, the white audiences and – then someone said, oh, well, that's because they don't speak English. And I was like, what? You're, you're joking. And it had never occurred to me that people would have not been speaking English at who, any who point. Who live in at, Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, oh, I, I felt such a goose. But I also thought, wouldn't someone have told me? From the theatre company before we went in. Anyway, yeah, it was. It you've, was you've, you've done the circle and Studio Ten and shows like that. Like sometimes yes. the audience in there doesn't speak much, much English yes, either. So. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> true. Uh, they need to bust some people in occasionally to fill out a studio audience. Um, uh, so, what did you then learn of that? Like, what was your awareness of that culture once you were thrown into it? Like, what were your impressions of what was happening in that part of Australia at that time? Oh, I've got, I've still got, I keep very little of of anything. Like I'm not a person who keeps letters or journal. I throw, I love throwing stuff out. But I've kept, or my mum actually kept the letters that I sent her and dad from Darwin. And I talk about, um, I, I'm obviously trying to get them to understand that Aboriginal people get a hard time and that there's race. This is my very conservative Anglo working class parents who probably were racist and I and relatives and would say things. So I began this campaign to try and um, tell them otherwise. So I was really struck by the racism and the segregation. I, I, I could not believe that we were segregated in this country it was my first ever yeah but um but but the commune was pretty white okay so 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 i didn't hang out with aboriginal people the com so how do you find yourself in the commune you get to darwin but how does the commune happen well because as part of my this is really Old shit. <laughs> like, I, I haven't thought about this in such a long time, but I, it, it, there's certain parts of your life, you know, that are really vivid in memory because yep. so much happens. So, and so I had determined, I was determined I was going to have sex with so, – because this relationship I'd been in was, I think, the first, the only person I'd had sex with. Goodness me. Could I really be talking about this with Will Anderson? <laughs> it appears I am. <laughs> Going all blushing. Anyway, and I thought, this is ridiculous. I'm 23 years old. I've got to, you know, I've got to get out there. It's the hippie days. But I didn't really want, I, I like love, yep. you know, like I'm a person who wanted to have love and sex, but that wasn't appearing to happen. So I went to a dance and went home with this chap to the commune. And he, well, he couldn't get it up. 
can you imagine? I've I've gone to Darwin to have sex, and everybody around me is having sex. It's like hippie stuff. It's like you know, going into one another's bedrooms, and the guy I pick couldn't get it up. And I was devastated, was sure it was me. And then he explained that really he was Christian and he had another girlfriend. But then anyway, he really liked me as a person and asked me to move in, but to another bedroom. So I got into the commune that way. And uh, yeah, and I... So how okay? So all right. I, I mean, I don't. This is just fascinating to me. But um, is it? It really are you, is. Are you bullshitting? Like I have no reason to bullshit. No, no, you don't. I'm actually That's true. doing this of my own free will. I have no contractual obligation <laughs> to do it. True. We've arranged it, and yeah. I am the one asking oh. the questions. So, uh, so we're talking. Just calm it down, just, Will. It feels. I mean, to me, I just am so interested in the idea of. I guess the whole point of why. I started this podcast is that I love, I'm not a religious person. You know, I don't have any particular set of Uh, beliefs, but I'm fascinated by beliefs and, you know, groups and what brings people together and, you know, the lifestyle of people who choose to live outside, you know, what the rest of society is doing and how that society operates. You know, those are the things that I am very fascinated by. So the idea of, you know, being amongst a community like that that is slightly outside society is just something that I find quite fascinating. Yes. Well, I think too, because I was um, brought up Catholic and in fact I was very Catholic. You know, I loved being... I loved believing in God. I loved believing in Jesus. I, I did really contemplate becoming a nun. Like I loved the thought of going to chapel every day and hanging out and... And then suddenly that all kind of went, oh, I, I just thought it was... And suddenly, you know, I saw the light, so to speak, and lost faith really rapidly, but quite late in life, like I was 18 or something. And from then on, I was really like... I must have had a sign on my head because I ended up at Pentecostal meetings, you know. Um, I, I really wanted to belong to something... To, to 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 and spiritual i loved spirituality i loved believing in something and uh but weirdly um remained so cynical so even in the commune where everyone around me was did absolutely start following the bhagwan shri rajneesh um who this documentary is about wild wild country um i never Never. I just thought you're crazy. Like he he's. I don't even know why. Because I wasn't that curious to find out why he'd fled. I didn't know why he'd fled the ashram. Why? But you know, it was all. He was fraudulent. He was taking money. So I didn't. I never really belonged. But the communal household I loved. I loved living in. You know this with all these people and having to fit in. I like that. But we all, we, we had, because um, of course when I first went there, everyone was nude. Like that was part of it. Like I got dressed obviously to go to work, but <laughs> come home nude. And uh, isn't that hilarious? Like, and mind you, everyone had good body. Like we're all skinny. You well, know, also and, if you're going to have to be nude all day. 
you're probably gonna yeah make sure you eat some healthy food along the way oh we had to eat healthy right. food oh yeah well that's we had some good lifestyle conditions well there were but then one day um there's a lot of interesting when you live in that sort of environment where one person decides that mattresses are bad and so next thing you all think mattresses are bad so this ute arrived because none of us had cars i don't know who all the mattresses went off to the tip and we all slept on the floor with um balsa wood pyramids over the top of us (laughs) like can you imagine you you like there's not a not even a tiny little bit of foam it's just the boards and this balsa wood pyramid like a frame of a tent or something over the top of you but get this you to get the really good vibrations this is how dumb i was you had to sleep with your head to the north uh-huh. and your feet to the south i'm living in darwin and i didn't know which way and I, I was really embarrassed that someone would find out. I knew it was bad that I couldn't figure out how to sleep north south. Anyway, I just sort of looked in other people's rooms and thought, oh yeah, that's what I've got to do. And of course, then within a week, everybody's back is fucked. Right. No one can walk because we're on floorboards, and we had to start bringing mattresses back, back in. in slowly. But oh, but the. Balsa, there was a little mini balsa wood pyramid for the yogurt to ferment. To the yogurt lived under its own pyramid, you know. And I thought this was all great. I believed it. So okay, well, this brings us very naturally to uh, you know at least the conceit of this podcast, which is I'm going to ask you if you have a particular philosophy towards anything. Um, do you have one? You don't need to, by the way. It's not uh, it. But is there something in particular that, you know, right now or that, you know, of recent that you, you know, you believe or you would say is a philosophy of yours? Uh, I'm still searching, but I believe in, in searching for the goodness in people. I guess that's a belief I have. Like, um, I like seeing the good in people. I enjoy it. You know, it gets a bit harder the older you get to see goodness. But, And I also uh, believe that essentially life's a good thing. Oh, that's bad, isn't it? That's no. boring. But I believe that... Um, I guess I grew up in a house where my dad in particular, like, you know, he liked his grog, so maybe that coloured his opinion. But he just saw goodness in everyone. He really did. He was a West Heidelberg footy bloke, drank. But really, everyone was terrific. Just terrific. I never heard him say a bad word about anyone or, and you know, and I, I just loved everyone. And I guess that's something I aspire to without the beer or the love of, I appreciate football, Will, but no, don't love it. But that, that attitude, like that genuine attitude, like, I mean, it, 
we'll talk about you know the the kind of nature of life a little bit in in a minute but um that idea that life if it is unexplainable and if it is what we get you know, just working mm. on that as the premise. I'm not saying that is, you know, there's no well, way I would know. that's how I see it. That's but, how you see it? Yeah, Yeah, well, much. I like to ask people that. Then you then you have to kind of work out some sort of, you know, way to handle that information mm. and what you do with it. And, you know, being quite grateful about everybody. Because I think your dad's probably right. Everyone kind of is terrific. If you find the thing that they're terrific at or they're terrific about or whatever, often... Even the people that we don't like, it's because of the things that we don't like about them. We're not looking for the thing that's terrific. Yeah, except as to you talking now, I think in some ways my dad, Russ, misled me because it took me a long, long time and I'm still finding it out that there are assholes. Oh, yeah, no doubt. And, uh, And I still am quite shocked every time I have to face that. Yeah, yeah, so, right. you know, but I have learned that along the way. But I still, yeah, I still, so I try, I guess, and stick with good people, you know, like hang around with good people and move on from assholes. Okay, so uh, being part of a community like a comedy community, like where do you, what? how do you feel? Where do you feel like you fit into yeah, what what we call the comedy community. You know, we have a we go to the start of the festival, and you know, we we all go and dress up in a you know, hospital and get a photo for the oh, Herald yeah. Sun, or you know, we all dress as the royal family and get a photo for the yes. you know, paper, or we do you know a gala or some you know some such thing together. You know, like something that is yeah, you know, here's the community, and then we all kind of break off into our yes. own you know bits and pieces and go off and do our own things. We're, I mean, we're in the middle of the Melbourne Comedy Festival at the moment. You and Judith are doing uh, some shows uh, at the Comedy Theatre as part of the Melbourne Comedy Festival. How, where is that? How does that fit into your life? I guess you know, at the moment, like, what's your life uh, look like with that in it at the moment? Um, well, I've never, I, I've always enjoyed being on the what I would call a periphery of the comedy community because when I started doing comedy my kids were little so I would never hang around and that was kind of a gift for me because I always felt really quite uncomfortable and as though I didn't really belong do you ever get that or oh, are you no I'm I, I'm I, you the are I, the comedy community. no the thing I love about the comedy theater is that I, I forget that that town hall exists and that's where 500 of the shows are. You know, you can go from your bit of the festival, you know, home. No, yes. no, I'm... There was a time, of course, when I was younger where, you know, um, I, I, I felt like I was, but now I don't really feel like that. And I don't think anybody needs me around at a party. I'm not making a party better. Get out of here. <laughs> I'm not. You? Really? Not. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, I'd like to have, like, I'd prefer to have this conversation with you now, you know, in this environment rather than have to have, you know. Oh, a, at a party. A, yeah, Ugh. try to have a snippet of a conversation with you at a party. See, well, yeah, like, because, yeah, when I started, I was with John, who I've been with now for 37 years. I had my kids to that I had to go home to. And I reckon to a degree that's why I hung about in comedy because I I had that – in many ways my aspiration when I was young really was 
to have a family and a little house. I think it was very similar to my parents. But I then I got lofty ambitions and threw in the Hollywood actress kind of thing, which was at odds. But in fact, I got the little house and John and kids. And so that was my um, base, I suppose, where I felt... Um, I felt pretty good about myself. No matter how shit house the house, the house was pretty bad, and the kids were covered in eczema, and you know. But, but I felt like we really did our best, and it was. But the comedy world was always one of pain and sort of turmoil in a way. It was like, oh God, nobody laughed tonight, or I've sold ten tickets, or oh, what am I doing? I don't know what I'm doing, and so it's always one of anxiety. So you know. And getting together with other comedians, I enjoyed because, uh, but um, I guess now, like sometimes I'll say to Judith, well, I guess you're my only real friend in this scene. Like I don't hang out with comedians a lot, do you? Well, you I think must. that there's a certain yeah. time when you have your own families and your own worlds and those sort of things. I mean... You know, the the thing I like about, you know, I joke about the photo shoot, but I like yes. that because you have to all be in a room together for two hours and there's a lot of downtime between when people are getting, you know, makeup and blah, blah, blah. So you can actually genuinely yeah. have a bit of a catch up with people. And that's when I think, oh, these people are really cool. They're yeah. really great. And but I'll see them again in a year when yeah. we do another photo. Although, see, I think because I now... It's sort of a lonely, like there's Rod Quantock and there's me. <laughs> I love Rod, don't get me wrong. But that's the group we've got to hang out with really. You know what I like as far as like age. It, it's a seniors too. Kind of, Is that what yeah, you're... you know, the age, the, 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 you know, then there's Judith who's like 13 years younger than me. So I guess I've always, and and that's a sort of, thing I've learnt well and you know you were saying before about how long do you keep going the longer you keep going the more you get the one and only possible job for a person that age I'm going whispering now I don't but I found that so you know if they want an older woman in a, a tv comedy series well there's me I mean you could age up Magda you can <laughs> You can put a grey wig on Magda, but, you know, otherwise, it's, hard. it's mine. I'm ruthless. Yeah, well, you're a, you're a, you're a core demo. You're yeah, Like, if yeah, that demo needs yeah, to be ticked. Yeah. I understand that, but I also think that I hadn't quite thought about how, I mean, obviously, when you've done it as long as, uh, you know, each generation becomes like, you know, for me now that I'm in my third decade of doing it, of course there's people who started out and did it for a long time who now don't do it or they do some other form of it. You know, they've become writers or producers or they've stepped away from comedy altogether. And you forget that. I mean, I think the thing that I was probably thinking is I feel like I still know a lot of these younger people, but if, it's it's Nick Nick Cody and Daniel Sloss and Becky Lucas and these people who are all having a party. And if you're the 
you're the toolie at school this week, you know? It's not like you're not welcome. Well, you're not going to ask yeah. her 63-year-old Becky Lucas isn't... I mean, she might, but that's like having you... I'm almost grandmother age now. Of oh, Not quite, but, you know, I'm certainly everybody's... I'm older than people's mothers. Yeah, but I'm older than people's dads now in comedy. I can't bear this, Will. See, I I look at you and think of you as a youngster. Well, I would like to think that too, Scotty. See, you're cool. Um, So, uh, performing with Judith, Mm. um, how did that start? Uh, How did... Because I'm interested in, like the collaboration between two people who are individually fantastic and how you... I mean, it's been interesting to see what, um, you know, Colin and Frank did apart, but I kind of always knew them as, you know, yes. Lena and Woodley first, and then they went apart and did their different things, and now they're back doing Lena and Woodley. But a very different thing for what you and Judith are doing, where you both had your you know own very successful and different careers, but have started collaborating together as well. Yeah. How did that come about? Oh, well, that started way back. It was 99 when we did our first show and that was with Linda Gibson as well and who, of course, was a um, comedian. A brilliant and, comedian. Yeah. But, but for people who – because there may be some people who listen to this who don't know about Linda, but – when I first started doing comedy, uh, was like just a amazing hero of mine because she was like the stuff that I like. That sort of you know, she was very political. She was very yes. kind of you know energetic on stage in a way that I responded to. And when I was doing my first ever comedy festival show, I asked had a little meeting with her on Brunswick Street to ask if she would direct it for me. She said no, but still, that's how much I loved Linda Gibbs. I was oh, a, so she would have a, been smoking her rolly cigarette. Smoking her rolly cigarette. Maybe having a coffee Yeah, it would have been day. coffee, definitely, I would have said. She but wouldn't have started wine till No, nah, I reckon it was like Later a, in the day. Yeah, I think it was an early morning meeting too, but um, a hero of mine. And, yeah, you know. and, and actually mine. And, and um, I think uh, for, for listeners, I guess... I sometimes look at Anne Edmonds and see a bit of Linda. Like it's a really good example. Uh, she, it's the, when we started doing comedy, it was with a kind of rawness, and I suppose um, a, we, you know, there wasn't the stand-up form we had to adhere to, and so I feel like Anne Edmonds does that, and. and and um, so, if Linda- I could just before we get into Linda, I, I want to say on that about Edo is I went and saw her, um, you know, Helen Badu yeah, show, the yeah. Spinnaker well- Lounge, the other night. And the thing that I keep saying to people when I want, and I think it speaks to what you're speaking about, is there are so many parts of that show where I was in hysterics. And the thing that kept occurring to me was I know now why this is funny, but how did she imagine that this would be funny like you know do you mean yeah. like, I, I, you, once you see it you go oh yeah this is amazing but i can't imagine the conception of it and linda was very much like that as well where you'd be sometimes watching her do something where you were like okay i get this is funny now that you're doing it and we're all laughing but i'm just not sure how you had the thought and knew that this was going to be funny yeah yeah and and linda always did very outrageous kind of characters yeah and uh but linda 
So Linda was my peer as far as uh, comedy peer and Judith um, and J- Linda and I were, were um, we worked hard but we didn't uh, sell, well, I mean we got people to our shows but we weren't certainly being critically acclaimed and Judith in the meantime was being critically acclaimed. She sold big venues, you know, so she would have been, I don't know how old we all were then, but, um, and I had this, I couldn't, I had a visual image of the three of us on stage in gowns talking. I didn't know what we were going to be talking about. I just thought, wouldn't it be great for the three of us to be in beautiful gowns talking and I said this to Linda and I remember Linda saying, well, why would Judith Lucy want to work with us, Scotty? She's successful. And I said, and then that got me sort of fired up. I thought, well, yeah, but, you know, she might. You know, Well, how are you going to ask her? I remember us having this conversation. I went, well, well I'll ring her. Oh, and how are you going to get Judith Lucy's phone number? Because Linda hated herself much more than I hated myself. Uh-huh. You know, we were really competitive about self-loathing. And uh, anyway, and then I I remember ringing Kevin White, Judith's manager, and saying, oh, I've got this idea, uh, you know, and I was just wondering if Judith... And he went, oh, so you want Judith's number? Here it is. And Linda's going, oh, my God, what? He just gave you her number? And then I remember ringing Judith... And saying, I'm not sure Kev would do that these days. Oh, God, no. Oh, God, no. As if. As if. You'd never get it. And then, you know, I, I just said, I, I said, I'd really like to do a show with you and Linda. And she said, oh, what about? And I said, I really don't know. And she went, oh, all right, I'll do it. And we just got together and wrote uh, uh, Comedy is Not Pretty, which was... Everything we were told not to do was like, well, don't talk about comedy in a show. Certainly don't talk about being women in comedy in a show. And we did it and because that's what we had in common. And uh, it was fantastic. And because, I, it, like, it was really physical and Judith and I had never been physical, but it was huge. We had huge fights like physical fights and hurling one another over furniture and, you know, in these long gowns. It was, oh, just a dream. And then, uh, and then, of course, we got together to write a second show and that's when Linda's ovarian cancer had come back and, and it was a really the most amazing experience and that's where Judith and I really bonded because uh, Linda was dying and really ill and we were getting this show together and it was a nightmare really because it was devastating because and she hadn't said I'm dying but we all knew it and then um, and then Linda arrived at rehearsal and Linda was being very difficult because she was um, on a cocktail of drugs that and facing death and not talk, not talking to friends about it 
and she arrived at rehearsals and she's had her she said I've got a scene for the show and it was um her on her deathbed uh explaining what she wanted at her funeral and Judith and I are in this rehearsal space uh, listening to her and we hadn't talked we we I mean Linda and I had talked about her illness but we hadn't talked about death and then uh oh it was just this uh, such a time of fucking hell Linda's dying and and then Judith was amazing she's sort of after a pause said oh it's really great but it's comedy festival <laughs> it's got to have a laugh in it and and Lynn and so Judith did rewrite it and it was just fantastic and we had the scene in the show and we did start talking about death with Linda like or not but it meant that it had been acknowledged that this there was going to be no happy outcome for this situation and so the scene in the show that Judith was Lynn, um, Judith and I having a sort of really huge fight, fisticuffs over Linda in the deathbed over who would do the eulogy because it was going to be a great gig. You know, Rove McManus will be there for sure and I need the work. No, I need the work. And, and meanwhile, we'd forgotten all about Linda. And in fact, when Linda did die, um, Judith and I did do the eulogy together. But it was... That point on, Judith and I, it was like this real gift, Will. It was, um, oh, like we got to be part of this amazing woman's death, both on stage and then off. We we got to hang around at Linda's house for a couple of, well, it was a good six weeks in the lead up to her death and... Uh, and yeah, and we learnt that the sh- because the show we ended up writing and putting on was not it was not a great show. It was really the best we could get together in the circumstances, and it didn't sell very well. But we all, all of us, loved that show because Linda wanted to do it. She never wanted to give up. Because we kept saying, we, we don't have to do the show. Like, come on. And she went, no, no, I want to do this show. And and it was for Judith and I like, wow, life life is about a lot more than comedy. And we learnt it there and then on the spot. And it was really awesome. And then after Linda died, um, we, you know, didn't feel right about doing another show together because it was like the three of us thing. And then finally... Um, you know, you get a bit lonely doing comedy. Right. So fi- uh, some years later, Judith and I decided, yeah, so we've done another two. Very long answers, Will. I'm sorry, but... It's a very long podcast, Scotty, and it's all right. <laughs> um, uh, my stomach has been rumbling more in this podcast than usual. I don't know if your uh, oh, oh, stories uh, are making, making me you hungry? hungry. Is that mm. what's happening? Um, mm. Hungry for more information. <laughs> yes, for life. Um, I, I, the the death thing is interesting to me. I, it, this podcast always ends up 
with us talking about death at some stage Does anyway. And well, what, I've heard somebody always. Well, I, 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 because I think that what you think about death often informs yeah. how you choose to live your life. Mm. And so I like to you know, hear what people think about. But also, eh, without putting too much information up the front, I think that the idea of when you're considering your own death versus the death of somebody that you love you can want to think about death in two very different ways. Yeah. You can be quite practical, I think, about... Like, my own death, I want to be... I, I'm like, oh, you know, I think I'll probably be dead and then I'll just not exist anymore and that'll probably be it. But if someone who I love dies, I don't want to think that. I want to think that, you know, there's something much more to who we are and what we are. So you're talking to me about the death of a, you know, a friend and a colleague and a loved one. So I thought it was just an interesting time to talk about how yeah. you feel about death. I, well, I think this is where I sort of have taken to my bed because I, when I was growing up, my mum worked in a, a nursing home across the road from our house. So I spent a lot of my childhood, a lot of time in a nursing home, just hanging out with old people. And it was well, I, I call it old-fashioned nursing homes, but it's still similar to today. It's just like I hated it. I, I, I would look at these people and dread that that would, could ever happen to me, that your life became so purposeless and you just hung about in a bed till you died. <laughs> and I think it really, really has affected me that I'm – that's what I'm terrified of. And instead of, I think now in my 60s, I'm think, I, I am thinking about the end and I'm actually really quite scared of death. I'm, I'm, it's kind of paralysed me a bit, I think. And I find that really interesting that I'm so, I'm scared of missing out you know, of, oh, what, I won't be around for this or this. And, and you know, this is a, a stage in life too where you get a little a little lump or a little skin thing and you think, oh, well, that's it, that's terminal, I'm out. And, of course, um, and I'm terrified actually. And I think that's where I'd love to have some spirituality to see me through but... Um, yeah, I see it pretty much as well. I'll just be gone. But interestingly, when when Linda died, which has been like I was with my mum. I've been with a couple of people when they've actually died, but um, with Linda, what was interesting was she did have a real spiritual kind of awakening. So, and I got to see it. It was, and and it which is the only time I've ever experienced that. And it was really powerful. It was like, wow, because Linda was always very cranky, love, like adorable. We all loved her for it, but negative, you know, and she drank a lot, like, you know, and um, but by the end she got too sick to drink, so she'd stopped drinking and got into talking about God and, you know, she talked a lot about God and came to terms with who God was before she died, and and it was to do with, um, you know, the the 
God is love and love is everywhere and you are God and I'm like and this is Linda Gibson on a bed talking like this so it's and and I hoped I'd sort of see that myself but it was wonderful to see her go towards death with so much positivity it was insane you know it was and it was wonderful for those around but I can't I I don't know I I I just see it as well that's that done having said that I I think oh you've really got to enjoy life because that's what I don't know what else there is that's uh Lovely. I, I, I subscribe very much to what you're saying, which is always when I found it the most lovely is when people reinforce my beliefs. Of yes, course, of course. Uh, uh, I, I'm just going to tell you a quick little story. You said that nursing homes are, uh, you know, essentially can still be the same, and I think that is absolutely the truth in a lot of ways. Uh, where I live in Sydney, well, where I have lived in Sydney. Uh, the neighbourhood next to the one that I live in is a you know, very exclusive sort of neighbourhood and they have built this, uh, you know, sort of behemoth. It looks like a Westfield shopping mall, but it's a, um, you know, a, a retirement home. And, you know, they have live performance and they have like a, you know, shop that sells, you know, gourmet cheeses and kombucha <laughs> and, you know, it's the whole sort of, you yeah. know. The, but it's still, you know, the, it has the practicalities of being a nursing home. When yeah. you walk by and look through the windows, the beds are often hospital beds or if people have their own rooms and these things. But the thing about it that I it just is constantly amusing to me is that so it's quite tall. So you know, maybe I'm going to say like maybe six or seven stories and it's right on the edge of, uh, of Australia. So that basically if you're on one of those like fourth or fifth, you know, sixth upwards stories, you can see out and basically all you're seeing is the ocean. You know, every day when you open your windows, you have this beautiful view of the ocean Unfortunately, in between the ocean and the nursing home is a massive cemetery. So wow. <laughs> it's literally just one of those things where you're like, your view's good if you just yeah. keep it at eye level. But if you look down, you are constantly reminded of what the next stage of your life is, which I always think is just such a weird place to build a retirement home, I would have thought. Yeah. Um, you you talk about love. Um, you talk about your, your family and you know raising your family. Um, how long did you say you and John have been together for? Thirty-seven years. So h- how does that work? Thirty-seven <laughs> years. How does thirty-seven years happen? Because people would you know be fascinated by that. I think. Oh, it's see that's you. Yeah, it. I think we both, weirdly, because we're very different people, but we both wanted to be with one partner, you know, for the rest of our lives, except then, and I've I, I've referred to this before, but there were affairs it, that, that absolutely, like it was like, what, oh, what are we on about really? We really tore our relationship apart, both of us. And which was weird because we had the kids then and it was a, quite a happy or I would have thought a happy place. But I guess in many ways we were going to challenge that normality in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and it all went awry, terribly awry. But ultimately, we stuck together. But interestingly, just this year, we went to counselling for um, a year and thrashed all that out. And most of it was about stuff that happened. Oh, I don't know how long ago it is now. Twenty. 20 years ago, 22 years ago, and really mortifying. Like, because we were both absolutely mortified. And it was in the last year that we didn't know if we were going to be able to make it through that. Because it's like, wow. And, and you're sort of mortified that you've sat on this shit for so long. And that I think it was part of um, the same thing, the dog dying, the kids living overseas, mum, like John's dad had died. He was also very ill. So we'd always been quite busy looking after other people and we really enjoyed that and did it well together. John in particular is gorgeous at, you know, he really took a lot of care of my mum and his dad and our kids. Like very, But then once all that was gone, oh, that's right, it was actually the dog dying that I said to John one day because I was really depressed after the dog died. Like, and, and we got to a point where we were arguing and we realised that that dog had been providing all the love, you know, like this non unconditional love that we both needed, you know, it was like, oh, well, you come home and you've got this dog who loves you and is glad to see you, so you know, it doesn't matter what John thought or I thought. And when this dog, when Raffi the dog went, because Raffi had been around for 15 years, we were like, oh, God, we've either got to get another dog or go to counselling, relationship counselling. And then we thought, oh, let's, well, we'll go to relationship counselling. And... We were sort of a bit cocky about it. Uh, And after the first session, we came out reeling like, God, there's and but it was really fantastic. It's been fantastic actually to, um, mortifying to have to face that you're so flawed and that your relationship is so vulnerable and, but really good to get it all out and, and once again come back to this point, well, you're who are, we've got one another, for God's sake. what? So we kept, well, for me anyway, I was sort of visualising like, what, am I going to now, what, move into a flat, live on my own? Really? You could always start a commune. Well, yeah. I used Darwin, to s- back to Darwin. Because <laughs> I'd say to John, oh, you need a, you need a, woman who plays ukulele and enjoys you playing a ukulele because poor john he, you know he's obsessed with ukulele and oh plays no woman no cry that was his one of his favorites and i'd be like oh fucking stop playing that ukulele everything was driving me mad so we've gone back to this uh i have to say this woman um who the counselor was ruthless you know i i don't know how much counseling you've done but sometimes they're really kind of nice nurturing counselors 
And then there's the ruthless, like, well, I'm not going to take any of your shit. Like, well, I think that, yeah, I mean, and obviously different people need different things in different situations. I've been to a few. Some some that I found, found made it worse and some that I found made it better. Yeah. And you have to kind of find what works for you. Um, I think that occasionally I could probably do with a little bit more ruthlessness, you know, because when I am confronted by stuff that it's very easy to paint a picture in your mind of, you know, how things are. And, you know, sometimes a third party is a good person to come in and go, well, here's, you know, I'm going to really ask you some serious, decent questions here. Well, what came out in this session, which I, and I know, well, I assume John wouldn't mind me saying, but part of it was, it, it it happened after or before the Me Too stuff started coming out. But I guess there was this rumbling of uh, women just not really content and happy with the way men in general were behaving. And, in fact, John was a product of, you know, um, growing up in the 50s, and for all his attempts to be a very, you know, feminist kind of guy, there'd been behaviour that was really not at all that way. And a lot of... Um, he had to face a lot of that in this session. Both of us together realised that there was this sort of um, war had gone on because, you know, uh, I was trying to have a career but having to really do most of the hard yards at home and but he was so bombastic that he'd get credit for just about every like it was so and and that was a war we worked through together but and and I have to say John was fantastic but this counsellor he'd start talking and she'd just sort of show nah bullshit and but that's what he had to deal with and it was very difficult for both of us. It must, it, there must be something about going through that again, though, with somebody. Like, I mean, to really, you know, if you can, if you, yes. can, if you can go through it. Like, I mean, if it isn't the thing that tears you apart, if it's the thing that you come out the other side of, there must be a deeper love and understanding of something that, and someone that you can get out of that situation. And it is worth... Uh, well, well, we'd sort of shoved it aside because it was so long ago, so yeah. old, and we decided after that that there was no more, like, you know, yeah. there would be That's no more affairs or, yeah. or that would, if there was, that would yeah. end the relationship. Yeah. As of now. Yeah. but yeah. You but wouldn't think you'd have to announce it again, but we, but so Sometimes in going back reset, and looking at it, it was, um, yeah, it just it was more about the sort of people we were and thought we were and yeah, I was uh, anyway. I I was throwing that ball up in the air and prepared to have a look at it. I love you. You're the best. You really are just such a interesting and fascinating person and I think you're just such a, you know, beautiful, wonderful stand-up comedian and I'm such a huge fan of yours. Um, uh, you and Judith are doing shows. Uh, still got uh, one more show of disappointments at this. No, we've more? got how many more have you got? From one about four. Oh, you got four more. Okay, four well, or five. Yeah, even. All right. so heaps. Five. Okay, yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, well, you've got heaps then. In Melbourne, that is, right? In Melbourne. And then and have then you got other dates around the country? In New South Wales and then West Australia. Okay, nice. No, so, all right. Yeah. Well, I'll do a proper plug at the start because that's what I like to do oh, as well. Don't worry about comedy. it. Comedy.com.au, you know, you know yes. all those sort of things. You know, go there. You'll find all the information you need. Call up Kevin White. He'll give you Denise's uh, personal phone number so that you hey, can give yeah. her a call. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being part of this, mate. I appreciate it. Thank you, Will. 